So I'm going to show you some symbols that I want you to tell me what they represent. All right, here's the first symbol. Very expensive shoes. This symbol. Money, just money. You got that? It means money. This one. The happiest place on earth. Yeah. How about this one? Our benevolent overlord. Terminator was right. Man, when Siri came out, I knew it. Uh Uh-oh. We are doomed as a civilization. This one. Pure joy. That's what that is right there. All right, so we can easily, you see these symbols, you see them. Instantly, it's recognition. You know what they mean. All right, so what is the symbol for Christianity? Is it this one right here? Or maybe now it's been modernized, so it's this one. Yeah, that'll teach them. Or this was my favorite. I couldn't believe this one. I mock Jesus because I'm scared of Muhammad. Ooh, all right? Or maybe it's this one. Maybe this is the new symbol of Christianity, the descending dove of Calvary Chapel. What do you think? What is the symbol? It's the cross, right? The symbol of Christianity that is universal. It's known around the world. If you show it, everyone will, okay, that's Christianity. It's the cross. Now, why? Well, for the first time in the gospel of Mark, Jesus plainly and clearly tells his disciple about the cross. And here's what's really interesting. There's not just one cross. There are two crosses. So you ready? We're going to talk about the cross today. Jump in with me. Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So if you were with us last week, we looked at the previous confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah. And then Jesus subsequent talking about, hey, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was this triumphal, incredible passage where Jesus says, we are going to go to the worst place you can imagine, the gate of hell. And we're going to camp right there 
and we're gonna destroy it. It will not destroy us. We are going to win. And the reason, because I am Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the one. I'm God in the flesh. I guarantee a fatty W, right? Woohoo! the disciples must have been thinking. And if they're thoughtful at all, then they'd be like, well, how is he going to do that? Are we going to get some drones? Laser-guided weapons? An EMP? Biological weapons? Omicron? Are we going to get Elijah and call down fire and kill him at the bottom of the mountain? How are we going to do it, Jesus? And what does he say? I'm going to die on a cross. That would be a downer, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, what? You're gonna, that's an ER moment. So what is, they're all dumbfounded. All 12 of them are like, what in the world is he talking about? So Peter is the one guy that can't keep his mouth shut, right? So he's the guy, and it's nice. It says he took him aside. If you're gonna rebuke God, do it privately. Super, super thoughtful of Peter. Hey, come over here, right? So he rebukes Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? rebukes Peter. And it says, Mark adds, Jesus seeing the disciples rebuked Peter. Peter got rebuked in front of the disciples. This is the worst rebuke in the Bible. It is brutal, brutal. And there's a ton of stuff in here. Who is Jesus rebuking? Peter or Satan? Let me read it. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Who is Jesus rebuking, Peter or Satan? Yes, that's the right answer. Yes, it's both. That there was some kind of a partnership here, some kind of a Peter being instigated by Satan. And remember, Peter had just confessed Christ as Lord. He had just made the confession of faith. So can confessing believers be influenced by demonic and satanic powers? Absolutely. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul, the superhero of the New Testament, says, hey, I had these plans to come to you, but Satan hindered me. My plans were changed because of the power of dark things, dark forces, absolutely. Can our doctrine, because really, Peter has a theology about what Jesus was supposed to be. And his theology was this, he's a conquering king. Jesus is going to roll into Jerusalem. He is going to seize the throne. He's going to get rid of the Romans. Everything's going to be great. That was his theology. A conquering king. He did not want a wounded, victorious servant. He wanted a conquering king. But what was Peter ignoring? A ton of passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, read it. That Messiah would be cut off brutally, 
killed. He's ignoring all that. Can our theology and doctrine be influenced by dark powers? 100%. Read First and Second Timothy. The warnings about these coming doctrines. Be very, very careful. Absolutely. So Jesus says this to them, and I have it underlined in my Bible. He says the Son of Man must. There's no other option. He must. We know a short while after this, Jesus will be in a garden and he will be praying and he will pray this. If there be any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, thy will be done. It must happen. There are people that do not like the cross. They don't like the brutality of it. They call it divine child abuse, the father abusing the son. It's too brutal. It's too bloody. Let's do away with that. We don't need that stuff anymore. But Jesus says, we must have the cross. So why do we need the cross? I can do a bunch on here. I won't. We'll wait till chapter 15. I'm going to give you three quick reasons why we need the cross. Number one reason is this, because of love. So let me ask you guys, do you love your spouse? Okay, if you love your spouse, raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand right now and you're married, it's gonna be an awkward trip home. I gave you a freebie right there, just free. Like, ah, okay, I do. Okay, would you still love your spouse if they never cleaned up? They never did a chore. They never said, I love you. They left their socks, their shoes, their towels, their cans, their dishes, their wrappers, all over. They never went shopping for you. They never bought you a gift. They never took you on a date. They never complimented you. They never said thank you. They never said good job, right? Would you still love them? Yeah. Yeah. I talk with couples all the time that say, "Ah, it's just gone now. And a lot of those reasons are right in there, right? Because ultimately, the best human love can have is a selfish love. That's the best we can do. It's, we need people around us that fuel us. We need people around that affirm us. We need people around that make us feel better about ourselves, right? That's the kind of people we're looking for. But what is in all those terms? Me. It's the best a human can do is have what's called reciprocating love. I just finished a book by Yuval Harari called Sapiens, fascinating book. And he said, it is reciprocity that brought the caveman out of the cave into community. That is the glue that holds civilizations together. It's the glue that holds every friendship together. That I do something for you and you do it back for me, that we have that as the core value for us as humans. And I tend to agree with him. We want people around us that affirm us and make us feel better and do things for us. Absolutely, we, we need that. But at the, at the core, core of all that is me, my needs. They're not meeting my needs anymore. Man, if I heard that, if, if, if I've heard that a hundred times, I should say, in marriage counseling. Because there's a need there, no doubt. So our love, really at the core of it is, there's a lot of me in there. Now, different degrees with people, no doubt. Some are super selfish, some are better at it, but all of us have us as a need in love. God has a different kind of love. 
So in the Old Testament, it's called hased. And if you have different Bible translations, how that word hased is translated all over the world because we don't have a proper word to translate it into English. We don't have a word. So a lot of times it's loving kindness, but it's a different kind of love. In the New Testament, it's called agape. And here's what those love two words are. Here's what they literally mean. It's giving, period. Not to manipulate, not to reciprocate, not to get something back. It's God gives, period. It's that high, incredible love that only God has. So if you go back to our creation, God did not create us because he was bored. You have a Godhead community in unity for eternity past. They weren't bored. They're like, man, we've been doing this a long time. We need some entertainment. You know what we need? We need to create Matt Heverly. That'll be so fun. We'll make him love Volkswagen buses without brakes and the beavers. It'll be brilliant. Let's create them. God did not do that. Creation was an overflow out of God's love. Not because he needed something, not because he was bored. He didn't need you and me. He was completely fulfilled in himself. But out of that overflow, because of pure love, he creates. That's an unconditional, selfless love. And here's the beautiful thing. When that gets planted in a human, you become a different kind of creature. All of a sudden, you have capabilities you didn't have before. We are like Pinocchios that become real boys and girls when that love is planted in you and me. We become capable of a new kind of love, the Bible says. We become capable of a fruit of God's spirit called agape, giving without manipulation, giving without reciprocity. That's what happens to you and me. And when you actually experience that love and become a conduit for that love, something clicks in the human mind and you say, this is what I was created to do. I have never felt more purposeful or more brilliant than the moment I am a conduit for this agape. And the cross is the only way it happens. The cross is the example of hased. The cross is the example of agape. So love. Number two, for peace. I have a statement. I have it at home. I have it written out. Peace costs. Do you know that? Peace is the most costly thing in the world. Has anyone ever done something to hurt you? Has that caused you to have like an awe against them, like a little bit of like animosity towards them or maybe a lot of animosity towards them? When you have that, what happens in your head? You want to make them pay somehow. So if they come up in a conversation, you make sure and get in a couple little jabs at them. Oh yeah, but did you know this about him? Did you know this about her? It's always there. If your buddy's thinking about hiring them, yeah, yeah, you better ask where the money went from that last company. It's always kind of there. It's always seething underneath the surface and you're always wanting to make them pay because they hurt you. But here's what happens when you do that. You actually become more and more like the person you're trying to hurt. Did you know that? So I just finished a couple weeks ago this book and the title of it was what got me to read it. It's called The Happiest Man on Earth. It's by Eddie Jacku. 
He's a Holocaust survival. For the first half of the book, it's just your heart is ripped out about the evil in this world. And I think it's very important for believers to read about the evil in our world because we can begin to believe it's something that's not. The world is a battleground and there is real evil in our world. So that was the first half of it. And then the second half of it is him trying to recover from the pain that was just year after year done to him. And he said, what happened is he got married, loved his wife a lot, but because his mind was so fixated on vengeance and bitterness and wrath and anger, it just started to spill over to his wife. And he started to become like what he hated. And he said, when his son was born, there was a moment when his son was born when he said, I have got to stop this. I can't do this anymore. This is ruining me. I'm becoming what I hate. And he made a decision from that day forward. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm gonna choose every morning. He goes, I have to make a choice every morning to not go that way, instead to smile and to be kind. It was a choice he had to make every morning because peace is costly. If you want peace with someone, that's what you have to do. When there's an opportunity to make the jab, you have to agonize and be like, grit your teeth. I could do it, but I'm not going to do it. When you could get vengeance, you have to go home and scream in your pillow instead of getting it. It's going to cost you because peace is costly. There's nothing more costly in the world. It costs you. And it's the only option. When you do that, it's the only time that there's the opportunity for reconciliation when you and I will absorb the agony of not giving the jabs and not doing vengeance and not speaking bad of people. It's the only opportunity. If we don't, we begin to make ourselves into their image and there's no opportunity for reconciliation. All right, so now, cosmic scale. Billions of people. All of us know this. Before you were a believer, you knew this. You had problems with God. We all knew it. One of my favorite theologians, Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, do you know why the dog barks at you? Because he knows you have ought with his maker. All creation knows it all groans and travails huh, because of us. It barks. So if there's going to be cosmic peace, somebody has to absorb all this. Somebody has to scream in the pillow. Somebody has to absorb it without getting vengeance, without repaying. And guess who does it? Jesus, Romans 5, 1, he made peace with God. On the cross, he absorbed it all. He paid for it. He could have got vengeance. He could have called down thousands of angels. He could have dissolved the nails that held him to that cross. He could have done any of that. He chose not to. I will stay here. I'll absorb this so that there can be peace with God, so that there can be reconciliation with God. So Jesus on the cross makes peace with our maker so that you and I can become peacemakers. That's why Jesus says, I must. If I'm going to disrupt this cycle of vengeance and this cycle of wrath and anger that's everywhere in this creation, I have to absorb it so that there can be peace with their maker and they can become peacemakers. It's for love. It's for peace. And thirdly, it's because of a battle. Seems like the opposite of love and peace. But if you're going to secure love and peace, there's going to be a battle. So last week, if you were here, 
I talked about Martin Luther's Christus Victor. That from the beginning, from Genesis 3 on, there was this battle. The lines were set up. You actually see it spill over right here. When Satan is doing whatever he's doing to Peter to get Peter to be part of the process, and Jesus has to rebuke him, what you see is there's dark powers at work. If love and peace are gonna flood into this new creation that Jesus is making, then guess what? The stealing, killing, destroying powers have to be defeated. There's gonna be a battle. So if you go to the last days of Jesus before the cross, what does he do the night before or the night of his betrayal? Passover meal, right? What's the Passover meal remembering? A battle against a really bad guy. His name is Pharaoh. And God actually gives Pharaoh nine opportunities to repent and to change his direction. Stop doing this, stop doing this, stop nine times. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and will not do it. Pharaoh, the one that enslaves God's people, the one that is killing God's babies, bad dude. And so then finally, I just put it this way, God punches Pharaoh in the mouth. We're done. I gave you every opportunity. It's over. I'm going to defeat you. The Passover was a preamble to the cross because we have a worse enemy than Pharaoh. Our enemy is called Satan, Hasatan. The Hebrew of that word simply means the accuser. And that's what he does. Does somebody have a little dirt on you? Maybe something that you did wrong and they know about it? What are you always afraid that someone will do with dirt on you? Use it to control you. Use it to cancel you. Use it to cause problems with you, right? That's what they do with dirt. Well, guess what the enemy does? Satan is always doing that. He's always accusing us. He's using his dirt on us. First, he tries to get us dirty by telling us, hey, come to Egypt. Get out of, come back to Egypt. Get out of the promised land, come down here. It's so fun down here because the enemy is really good at reminding you of me of the party, but not the puke or the hangover or the stupid things you did or the evil that was done to you. This reminds you, he reminds you of the party. Man, good times, man. Come back on down. The kicks, but not the kicks backs. And then if you and I do that stuff, what does he do? He's got ammo on us. He starts to accuse us. Or maybe he brings up your past and says, you're a terrible believer. You lied, you stole, you had an abortion, you had sex before you were married. You're a bully. You didn't have compassion on that person. You hurt him. You hurt her. You gossip on and on and on and on, right? So because of that, you don't deserve God's blessing. God's mad at you. You shouldn't have intimacy with your spouse. You shouldn't have a baby. You should, whatever it is. You ever heard that voice? That's the accuser. And that's what he does. God's mad at you. So what did the cross do to this? I'll give you one text. There's a bunch of them. It's Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15. Listen to what the cross did to that. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You might circle all. By canceling, you want a good cancel culture? Here is the cancel culture. I didn't invent that. I stole that from Dan Midlack. 
canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, notice the movement. Because this happened, what happened to Satan? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I'll sum this real simple. The enemy has no ammo anymore. He's got no ammo. Whatever he wants to throw at you and me, whatever accusation he wants to make at you and me, hey, it's been canceled. No ammo. So now when I hear that voice of accusation telling me because I did this, because I blew it this way, I don't deserve these things. You know what I say to Satan now? I say, you are absolutely right I did that. But I am so much worse than that because you don't, you only know what I do. You don't know what I think. And my thought life would make Charles Manson blush. But Jesus knows all that. And Jesus still loves me and bought me and adopted me into his family and canceled everything you have against me. So get behind me, Satan. That's what we have now. And if we were slightly charismatic, we'd be shouting right now. <laughs> That's the battle. That's why Jesus says, I must. I must. Because I'm going to cancel all this. How brilliant is that? That's just scratching the surface of the cross. We'll do a whole bunch more. But there's a second cross I want to get to. Check this out. Keep reading. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. There's a second cross. It's not Jesus' cross, it's my cross. It's our cross. And we already know this, right? We use this in our English language. Usually when something is difficult, we'll say what? Just bearing my cross. Maybe it's an illness or a disease and it's tough and it's like, well, just bearing my cross. Maybe it's a relational problem, just bearing my cross. Maybe you married crazy. And so you're like, well, just bearing my cross for the rest of my long, long, long life. It's going to bear it, right? Maybe it's you're going without something that you really need. Man, Fred Meyer's out of two-ply, just bearing my cross. Right? So we use it all the time. But I don't know if we get it right. So Jesus here thoroughly tells us what's expected. It's really three things. Number one is this. He says, you deny yourself. I think modern Christians need to underline that, circle that, highlight that. Because I have heard way too many sermons now from people that say we're to act authentically 
And when people say that to me, I say, show me the Bible again where it says that, please. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. The Bible's not, I'm okay, you're okay, act authentically, right? No way. Deny yourself, right? There are times I'm driving down 6th Street where I authentically want to harm other drivers, but I deny myself. No, I can't do that. Are you kidding me? No, the Bible is you are broken, broken up, and you need help. You need healing. You need transformation by the power of Jesus Christ, by church and by community and by scripture and by communion and fellowship and prayer. That's what you need. Not to act authentically. You deny yourself. And what's amazing to me is, I have a quote from the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. And they say this. They say, acting authentically does not make you happy. They say, acting on an identity congruent with your deepest convictions leads to happiness. Because authenticity is all over the place every day. What's my deepest convictions? Real simple. Jesus is king and I am not, so I deny myself. That leads to happiness. That's number one. Number two, take up your cross. Now, there's no doubt an aspect with the cross that's going to include pain. And with our culture, don't we hate pain today? Got a pain, get a pill. Has led to the worst drug epidemic in American history. Thousands are dying because of this hatred of pain, right? Like we think we've mastered pain now and maybe we have, like, right? With the epidural, we've mastered pain of birth. I'm assuming, I don't know that for sure, but it seems like it, right? And that is brutal, man. My wife gave birth to five children naturally. I remember being in the hospital room with number one and just going, oh, oh my goodness. When we were there for number two, they said, hey, Charity, would you like an epidural? She goes, no. I said, can I have it? I will totally take that right now. Golly, right? So we run from pain now. But what do we miss? When we try to shield ourselves from crosses, from pain, what do we miss? So this is a book called Cradles of Eminence. And it's two researchers that went and looked at 300 people that we would consider very important, very accomplished people. The Einsteins, the FDRs, the Clara Bartons, that caliber of people. And they want to know, what's the cradle? What was their childhood? What produced in them this kind of metal? That now we look back and say, wow, that's amazing. What's the cradle? Their conclusions were fascinating. Three quarter of them grew up in real abject poverty, hyper poor. The majority had crazy parents. They didn't have Warden June Cleaver. They had Al and Peggy Bundy. Like, oh my goodness. Quarter of them were handicapped. Just the list, you're just like, wow, that is a, that's a lot of obstacles. Their conclusion was this. It is not what happens to you that matters. It's how you handle it that makes the difference. Well, the Bible has been saying that for a long time. And my favorite account of this is Jeremiah because Jeremiah was going through some tough times. It's Jeremiah 9 through 23. Just a tough period in his life. Brutal. 
beatings, prison, bad. And he starts to complain at the beginning of this section. And God says this to him. It's one of my favorite texts. As he's complaining about his suffering, his difficulty, God says this. It's Jeremiah 12, 5. He says, but Jeremiah, I want you to run with horses. You ever tried to catch a horse? I have. You lose every time. You will not catch a horse. What is God saying to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, I want you to do things in life that no one will ever believe. Cradles of eminence. I want you to do things that people go, whoa, Jeremiah. Ha. Huh. And when we run from those things, what happen is, happens is we truncate the character that God wants to build in us and we get a really short story instead. So Jesus says, take up your cross. And then lastly, he says this, if you want to, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, We'll save it. The third thing is we're supposed to lose our life. The word life there is really interesting because there's a Greek word that you can just use. It's called bio. It means life. That's not the word here. In fact, a lot of translations struggle on how to translate this. It's the Greek word psyche, sometimes translated soul. It really means the center of your thinking. So you could easily put it like this. You got to lose your mind. Done, Matt. Got this one. What is Jesus saying here? Lose your mind. What is this? Well, he gives us the example. It's the next phrase. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, his psyche? How much of our mind is given over to money? How much of our thinking is consumed with money? We ever have our minds set on profits? Guilty. 18 years old, senior. They fill in five years. Where do you want to be? Mind making lots of money. 100%. Absolutely. And the reason why we do that is we think if I just had a little bit more money, then I would be happy. Is it true? Does money make you happy? Well, there's this thing called the Esterlin Paradox. You might be familiar with it. Study done in 1974. Brilliant people. Here's what they found. If you make money just a little bit over the medium, that's your happiest. Any more than that, no more happiness. Just your mind is given over to money. You spend more of your mind on money. That's all that happens. It's the Esterlin Paradox. It's like what the Proverbs would say when the Proverbs say, God, give me enough money so I don't steal but don't give me so much money that I forget you, right? So since that study, they've tracked this. And this is this graph here. So the, the line that's flat, it's going down a little bit, is actually happiness in America. The line that's going up at an angle is the amount of money Americans make, all put in 1996 dollars. So inflation is taken out of it. It is your buying power today versus 1974. And if you notice, it was about 17 grand in 74. Today it's 33 grand. What that means is this, you and I have almost double the buying power that people did in 1974. We have way more money. We walk around with supercomputers in our pockets. Something they could have imagined when a computer took up a building this size. Okay? So what is this telling us? We made a lot more money, 
but aren't we any more happy? Actually, just a little dip, a little dip in happiness. But what they're finding is this. The American mind is way more focused on money now than any other time. We're giving ourselves to money. Not getting anything out of it anymore. We're just giving a lot more of ourselves to it. Successful in paradox. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you're gonna lose your mind. But there's a reason, there's a way you lose your mind. Not just go crazy. It's lose your mind for two things. For my sake and for the gospel. And when you lose your mind for that, oh, you save it. You get zozo, the full orb of everything God wants for you. It's this, if you want a brilliant marriage, I'll tell you how right now. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus and you'll have a throw down marriage. You wanna be a great parent? You know what great parents do? They deny themselves, they take up their cross and they follow Jesus. You wanna be a great worker, great boss, great neighbor, I don't care what it is. Jesus right here is telling you and me in the simplest terms, this is how life was made. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That the cross is the place that you and me, that we are made into our destiny, were created, recreated into something that we could not imagine. And this is the only way it happens. Yes, begun by the cross of Jesus Christ, his love, his peace. He defeats the enemies for us. And then we willingly respond by saying, okay, I'll deny myself. I'll take up my cross and I'll follow him. So before we take communion, I just want to mention three things to make sure you're not making a mistake here. Jesus is not saying this right here. He's not saying, I'm going to suffer the cross so that you guys don't have to suffer. That's called the prosperity gospel, and it is heresy. He is not saying that at all, okay? Jesus is not saying, I'm gonna suffer and die so that you have to take up your cross and be miserable. And there are certain forms of Christianity that wanna make that so. He is not saying that. Here's what I think if you boil it down, Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm gonna suffer and die on the cross so that, Matt, when you suffer, you'll be transformed into my same image. And you'll live a life that is the way it was designed to live. So take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me and watch and see how brilliant your life is. Watch and see you become a kind of metal that's actually able to camp at hell's gates because you can't do it without this. This is the only way you'll withstand those fires if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I think that's what he's saying. It's the recipe of Christianity. So as we take communion today, I want us to think through two things. First, rejoice because of what Jesus has done for you. His love, the peace you have with God, that you can now become a peacemaker, the battle he's won on our behalf that the enemy is out of ammo. You can say, uh, yeah, whatever enemy. I'm worse than that. But Jesus loves me and died for me and adopted me and I belong to him. That we rejoice, but also that we respond Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. 
Maybe there's an area where you know right now you're not denying yourself. Maybe you're running from a cross you know you shouldn't. Maybe your mind is set on things that you just say, it's really actually robbing me. So today you confess that and you get cleansed from it. And so Jesus today, we hold the remembrance of the cross that you left perfection, comfort, glory, became a babe, lived, died, rose again so that we could have peace with God, so that we could have a new way of love, true selfless love, so that the battle against our accuser would be won for good. May we eat with joy today. Let's eat together. we hold the cup the cup of forgiveness the cup of cleansing we ask that we would be a people that respond well to you confessing our sins being cleansed of those sins being put back on the right track this is a reset today and for those of us whose minds have been cluttered by things May we lose that today for your sake and for the gospel. And may you cleanse us from it. And may we pursue you well so that we can hear when you return with your holy angels, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's drink together. Amen. So we conclude with a song. After that song, you can be dismissed. But we have two things we offer every Sunday. Prayer up here and baptisms. And prayer matters. There's this little text in Ezekiel where Ezekiel is lamenting about how Babylon had happened and bad things had happened and it was really bad. And then God says this, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, but I found none. Looking for somebody that would pray and seek me and there wasn't any. Maybe it feels like things are getting bad for you. For people that you love. Stand in the gap for them today. Come, be prayed for. And then baptism. Obedience to your king who says to his kids after you've believed and confessed him, be baptized. And maybe today is your day where you're saying, okay, I'm gonna be baptized. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you haven't believed in Jesus. Right over here will be someone. Talk to him about what it means to put your faith in the king, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. They'll explain it to you. If you believe on Jesus, you can go right out and be baptized. 
today's your day, man, what a brilliant day. Let us join with you in what Jesus is writing in your life, authoring. Would you stand for one final song?